Well, good morning. Good morning. How to Crash and Burn. That's the title of our message today. Um, but before I get into it, uh, here, here's an interesting thing. A, a retired Air Force pilot is on record for uh, informing us of this fact about flying. He says that for every single degree that you fly off course, you will miss your target spot by, by 92 feet for every mile you've flown, which basically means um, for every 60 miles that you fly, you're about a mile off course. So in other words, if you, if you want to fly around the circumference of the world, want to fly around the equator, and you, you, you launch one degree off course, you will end your flight 500 miles off course, which is crazy, right? The, so the longer you fly, the further off course you become, even if you missed it by one degree at the beginning. Um, and, and is that acceptable? Well, not if I'm on a plane. Like if I'm flying from JFK to LAX, it's probably going what, to, what uh, 40 miles. It's going to put me 40 miles into the Pacific Ocean, right? So it kind of matters the, the right alignment right when you begin. And so my aim this morning as we unpack this beautifully intricate and poetic chapter in Jonah 2, um, my aim is to, at the beginning of this message, align us correctly with the right context and unpack um, what we're to understand in order to beautifully uh, receive God's word from this text um, and have the right understanding of what actually God is saying here this morning. So that's my, that's my aim this morning. And so as I jump in, I just I want, to, I want to pray together because I definitely recognize that if, if you're going to hear anything from God this morning, yes, it will be through my lips, but it will be from God himself. It will not be from me. So uh, let's, let's seek the Lord together as we begin, all right? Jesus, I pray that as, as we are jumping into the text of your word, I pray that you would speak powerfully to each and every single one of us. Um, God, I pray that our hearts would be receptive to hear what you have. And Lord, I pray frankly, that you would give us hope, that you would give us encouragement, and that you would give us the comfort that we need this morning. Amen. We're going to be talking this morning, like I said, about the concept of how to crash and burn. How to crash and burn. If you, if you were awake at all during 2020 and the first part of 2021, you have probably either personally experienced or seen somebody close to you crash and burn, right? Hit a wall, hit rock bottom, come to the end of themselves, However you want to describe it, you've at least seen somebody go, wow, this is so hard and I feel like I'm absolutely spent. I'm at the end of myself. And, and this is kind of what we see Jonah getting to. And so what I want to do today is examine how did he get to this point and what is God saying through his story to each one of us? How to crash and burn. And one of the things I'm realizing as I go through this book is that it's, it's surprisingly sophisticated and even at times challenging and frustrating to study. It's convicting. It's disturbing in, in some ways. If you really have your eyes open to what the text is actually saying, right? It's this, it's this very intense comic book satire um, type of storytelling about this rebellious religious hypocrite who runs from his own God and his sin has caused him to go down into this spiritual slumber to the point that he's become this wrecking ball in the lives of everybody else around him to the point that it finally catches up with him and he finds himself at the bottom of the ocean, literally. Jonah's a very bad guy. Like I, 
if you, if you have your eyes open to pay attention to what the book of Jonah is actually revealing to us about Jonah, he's a pretty lousy person. He's not a good guy at all. And, and so we ended the story last week where his sin had got him to the point where he is thrown overboard over the edge of the boat and now he's sinking down into the depths of the sea. And if, and if Jonah were a one-chapter story, if all we had was Jonah 1, this would be a very tragic story. Because we ended the story with this. Verse 17, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And you're not supposed to read that and go, yeah, I think he stands a chance. That doesn't happen, right? You, you read that and you go, oh no. Jonah's dead. His story is over. And if this was a one-chapter story, this would be a tragedy. Because three days and three nights in the belly of a fish for everybody else turns into four days and five days and six days and eventually fish poop. And so, and so you read this, and, and if you didn't have chapter two, you'd be like, this is a tragedy. That's a horrible way to die. And the story doesn't actually end there, however. It takes a crazy twist. And so what we're going to see this week is that Jonah, he, he faces death. He comes right up to the boundary line of his life, and he's kind of like peering over the edge. He's, he's facing his own mortality as he's swallowed up. And, and so you think that this is, this is a story about a guy who's getting what's coming to him. He's rebelling against God. God sends his punishment. Uh, he, he deserves what he's getting. He's getting what's coming to him. And and he's experiencing the consequences of his stubbornness and his apathy and his rebellion. But then it's exactly when he's swallowed up and he hits rock bottom by the consequences of his foolish behavior that what happens is God turns this vehicle of death into this bizarre vehicle of grace that surprisingly gives him new life. Okay? It's a powerful and beautiful picture of the gospel here in Jonah, that Jesus later on picks up the story and goes, that's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to go into the belly of the beast, so to speak, to the heart of the earth. And I'm going to be swallowed up because of the consequences of everybody else's sin. And anybody who's united with me, not only is united with me in the death, but also in the resurrection on the other side of this. And Jesus goes, that's exactly the sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of my resurrection. And so what you end up with here in Jonah 2 is probably one of the most striking and powerful images in all of Scripture. Like, one of them. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And then from inside the fish, Jonah prays to the Lord his God. From inside the fish. Like, he's not dead. Okay, First of all, that's, that should be amazing. He's not dead. Three, three days and three nights inside the belly of the fish. And, and what's he doing? He's composing this prayer to God in the form of beautifully intricate Hebrew poetry from inside the cramped belly of a fish, which is exactly what each one of you would be doing, right? <laughs> this is bizarre. Right? So, so to, to kind of like allow this to hit us, we have to get beyond our own familiarity with the story for a moment, right? You have a, you have a man who, who is in this is tight and restricting place. He's inside a literal stomach. It's not a huge cavern that he's just like, it's not like a cave that he's in. He's inside of a stomach 
You know, probably kalpen seaweed around his head, digestive enzymes burning every inch of his body. You know, you got like clams or squid tentacles between his toes. And worst of all, like no oxygen. Like he's cramped inside of a belly. And this very intense image fits the storytelling style uh, of Jonah. It's, it's this comic book satire that's, that's transformed into a prophetic message for God's people. And, and this image specifically raises for us the question, what, what kind of a story is this? Because if you remember from last week, what we said is if you're going to receive God's word from the book of Jonah, um, it's a little bit different from the rest of the prophets, right? The rest of the prophets, you receive a word from God out of the prophet's mouth. And then God's people hear the prophet and go, I should turn from my ways. But with Jonah, what we get is not necessarily a word from the prophet, but a story about the prophet. And so if we're to understand what God's word is to God's people, we have to actually understand how to interpret this story here. Um, and, and, and how God, working through the human author, intended us to read it. So uh, big picture, really quick, among good and godly and saved Christian scholars, there's basically two views about the book of Jonah. There's, there's kind of two uh, ways of interpreting this. Number one uh, is that the author intends this to be a claim of historical narrative. This is, this is a chronological sequence of events of how things happened. And so this, this chapter 2, this image of Jonah inside the belly, had to have been some sort of autobiographical statement from, from Jonah himself to be able to describe what he was doing inside the belly of the fish. The other uh, view about the book of Jonah, and, and also held by good and godly scholars, uh, people that I look up to, um, is that, that, that the author does not intend this, but instead writes this as a parable and takes a known historical figure and, and puts him into this parable setting for us to understand a, a powerful principle. Now, there are strengths to looking at this either way. There are people that I look up to and I respect who, who talk about this in both directions. Um, but regardless of their stance, everybody agrees on this, this comic book style of writing, and that everybody in this story is like, over the top in their behaviors, and that these stereotypes don't live up to, uh, these characters don't live up to their stereotypes, right? And there's this very intense imagery, and so what you get is something that looks a lot more like this drawing, uh, and I, it, I've had Grant Overbeek uh, draw four consecutive images to depict um, four different chapters in the book of Jonah, so this is the second one. Uh, I'll show one each week so that uh, each week you guys get to see a new image, and, and the idea is a lot more like saying, this, here's this historical figure, this man Jonah who actually lived, but let me uh, take his real life story and tell it in such a way that you, you are drawn into this story with all the intense imagery, and, and then right at the very end, the author intends for you to go like, oh, wow, there's a very powerful point that I'm supposed to get. So like I said, it's this comic book satire style of storytelling. And, and you read chapter 2, and for sure, this fits within that storytelling style. This man composing beautiful poetry cramped in the restrictions of the fish's stomach. Now, let me just say this really quick. This, this is not about, um, oh, if you think, Jonah's a parable, you don't believe in miracles. Or, oh, if you think this is literal history, then you're denying um, the particular narrative style of this storytelling. It's, it's not about that at all. In fact, 
um, we as a community and as a faith, we're united around this one central fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, and that if we put our faith and trust in him, we too will be raised from the dead at the end of our lives as well. So in my opinion, that's a much bigger miracle to believe in, right? So this, this isn't necessarily about, oh, if you think this is a parable, you don't believe in miracles or something like that. This is about actually approaching God's word and saying, let me allow God to speak to me as he's revealed his word. Let, let, me, te- let me let God tell me how I'm supposed to read this and not necessarily come in with my own particular uh, hermeneutical preferences, so to speak. That's, that's theologians speak for saying, making the Bible say what I want it to say. Right, that's, I'm not supposed to come in here and just go, you know, three points in a principle. This is what the, Jonah, the book of Jonah is about. No, I, I'm supposed to come here and go, what is God saying? And how is he saying it? And what is the, the, the fullness of the message that I'm supposed to receive? And so that's, that's kind of the, the idea that I want to use as the framework for how we go through Jonah chapter 2 specifically this morning. And what I want to do is target, Amy, uh, target answering two specific questions. Um, the first question I want to answer is, what is the meaning of this image, Jonah in the whale? Like, chapter 2, what is the meaning of this, especially in its biblical and ancient Semitic literary context? In other words, how were other people writing about this? In what way does this fit within the context that we find it in the Bible, in its historical context? And then the second question I want to answer is, what then is God saying to his people? How is this story speaking God's word to us today? All right, so the first half of my message, realistically, is going to be answering that first question, okay? So it's, it's going to feel a little bit more like class time, and I hope you guys bear with me because I feel like there's a very powerful and encouraging um, message that God is speaking to his people that if we can, like I said at the beginning, align ourselves on the right degree right in the beginning, I think you're going to be blown away with the power of what this text is about. So here's the problem that we have with the Bible, as we're we're talking about this. Here's the problem that we have with the Bible, and specifically the book of Jonah. It's a difficult book to read. And because it's difficult, when we feel like we're reading the Bible, sometimes we feel like we're not getting it. Okay, so we just kind of push our way through until we find a verse that makes sense to us. All right, something that we could cross stitch or put on a Hobby Lobby frame or make a, you know, smartphone lock screen with. And then we just keep on pushing through past the verses we don't really understand or don't seem to have some sort of powerful point. Until we find another verse that makes sense to us that, that might fit on a bumper sticker. And then we just keep going keep going with that, right? And, and if the problem is, if, you, if this is how you read the Bible, and, and a lot of Christians read the Bible like this, if this is how you read the Bible, you can kind of make the Bible say anything, especially if you pull specific verses out of its context. You can make the Bible say anything you want if this is how you read the Bible. And so what this leads to is a, is a view of the Bible that is just this collection of cool little self-contained sentences that are just specifically designed to warm my heart, you know, to give me a little bit of inspiration. And the problem with that is, if you view the Bible as this little grab bag of sentences, you can use the Bible, and frankly, you can use the word of the Lord, 
God said. Right? You can put that on the beginning of almost anything and attach a Bible verse to it. And what this leads to is a concept called spiritual abuse. Making people do whatever I want because I'm making the Bible say whatever I want. It's a humongous problem in the church today. And so the first rule, and this isn't even necessarily a religious thing, the first rule of being a good listener, being a good interpreter of communication, is to understand context. Right? To, to really get where is this text coming from. I heard it said one time, a text without a context is simply a pretext. In other words, I'll use it to say whatever I want. And so we have to understand the meaning of this story, the meaning of a story about a a rebellious Israelite prophet tossed overboard because of his sin, swallowed up and eaten by a fish, and then vomited out. In order to understand the the bizarre story like that, we have to get the context. And so if you read the book of Jonah, without ever reading any other book of the Bible, without understanding how Scripture operates and how God speaks through Scripture to His people, you might come out of a book like this only probably getting something as simplistic as obey God and be nice to people. And maybe don't go fishing when Jonah's around. I like, you would get something out of it, but you would really miss the beauty and the depth and the richness of a story like this that God is speaking to his people that we're supposed to receive. And so you have to go back and, and you have to kind of back up and ask, what, what is the context that we find this, our, uh, find this book in? And so if you, if you remember, uh, last week we talked about this. Jonah 1.1 uh, starts off with this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, who does this happen to? Who does the word of the Lord come to? He comes to the prophets. Right, so, so the book of Jonah finds itself among the books of the prophets. And if you've spent any time reading the prophets, reading the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, you probably got really confused. And maybe it was like your, your read through the Bible plan and like that was the moment at which you're like, yeah, I, I think I'll read the book of Matthew now. Right, I'll just kind of jump forward. This is really confusing. This is really hard. Uh, and, and they are. The prophets are difficult to understand. Um, but on a certain level, it's actually it's easy to understand the prophets if you get the basic plot line of what they're about. In fact, all of the prophets of the Old Testament follow a very similar narrative arc. And it's this. This is the story of, of Israel. This is God redeems his people out of slavery he brings them into a covenant relationship with himself. He gives them instructions about how they're to live holy lives as a partner on mission with God. And so he brings them into the promised land. And how do they do living in a covenant relationship with a God who redeems them? Not good. Right? And, and so this is, this is when the people have abandoned Yahweh and God sends his prophets. The God of the Israelites, Yahweh... Uh, as you're going to read in, in the Bible, it's, it's, it's the word Lord in all capitals, right? When you read that, that means the singular one God of the Israelite people, Yahweh. Uh, he, he, he sends his prophets because what has Israel done? They've, they've given their allegiance to idols. Or they've idolized certain objects. And, and they've started worshiping somebody else besides Yahweh. So the prophets enter the scene... And they say to God's people, this is your sin. This is what's happening. This is bad. 
you've abandoned Yahweh, and, and if you don't repent, there's a consequence for that. There is a consequence to your sinful behavior and your faithlessness to Yahweh. Because what's, what's happening is their sin is not just in a vacuum, right? Their sin is not just like me and God and nobody else notices it. Their sin leads them to injustice. Their sin leads them to oppression. Their sin leads them to misusing other people. Their sin leads them to abuse. Their sin leads them to all kinds of things. And so Yahweh, their God, says, I care about you, and I care about the people you're hurting, and I care about the people you're deceiving. So I want to course correct here. And so if you're not going to repent, I am in my mercy, I'm going to send a consequence. And so uh, what they see is uh, the consequence of their decision ultimately is the big bad empire of Babylon sweeping in and capturing Jerusalem and hauling off God's people. And, and this is the huge theme of the prophets. Like, here's what you're doing. Here's your sin. Um, here's what's going to happen if you don't return. Don't, don't turn back to me. But Yahweh's promises are much bigger than Israel's rebellion and sin. And so the prophets always look forward to this time where God will redeem his people, rescue a remnant of his people, and save them out on the other side. This is the basic message of the Hebrew prophets. And Jonah, this book, occurs among the prophets. And so the prophets are about this rebellious people who are faithless and they abandon their God. They suffer the consequences, but God's grace redeems them out on the other side. Huh. I wonder if I can come up with a story that shows what that looks like. Like, that's the book of Jonah. That's exactly what Jonah's about. And so while the other prophets, like I said, are these collections of words from God's mouth, through God's man, to God's people, the book of Jonah is actually a story about God's man to God's people that follows this exact same plotline. And what's even more interesting is, as you begin to immerse yourself in the prophets, as you begin to study the books of the prophets, what you're going to begin to see is that there is actually common metaphors that begin to emerge and start developing as time goes on. And so actually, one of the earliest prophets in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, one of the earliest prophets is the prophet Hosea. And so the prophet Hosea starts speaking to God's people, and he uses very powerful and poetic metaphors to describe this is what it looks like when you're rebelling and when God's going to send a consequence, and ultimately when he's going to redeem you, here's what it kind of is like. And in your Check this out. This is Hosea chapter 8. Um, this is towards the, uh, this is a few chapters, or a few books, I'm sorry, right before Jonah. Hosea chapter 8, verse 1 says this. But the, put the trumpet to your lips, an eagle is over the house of the Lord, because the people have broken my covenant and they've rebelled against my law. Right, there's a sin. Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. We rejected what is good and, and an enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They chose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Uh, skip to verse 8. Israel, here's the consequence. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like a worthless thing. For they've gone to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim, which is the capital city of the northern ten tribes of Israel. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. And although they sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. There's redemption, right? It's this, is, it's this, this image of, of God's people Israel and their sinful rebellion and the consequence that they're going to send 
that God's going to send. And, and what kind of imagery is used here? I love this. Israel is swallowed up. They're swallowed up. And, and as I mentioned, it, uh, Hosea was one of the earlier prophets. And so later on, the prophet Jeremiah picks up on this image, like many of the other prophets, and actually begins to develop these metaphors even further. As, as they're speaking for God to God's people, they're picking up these metaphors for sake of clarity and actually further intensifying God's urgent message to his people. And so they're going to be using very similar imagery as they're speaking to God's people. So Jeremiah picks up this imagery later on as he's describing the threat of Babylon. Uh, chapter 51, verse 34 in Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He's thrown us into confusion and he's made us an empty jar like a serpent, or maybe your translation says like a sea beast. He swallowed us up and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then he has spewed us out. I mean, come on. Like, that is exactly the narrative arc. That, that's the storyline of the book of Jonah. And so the author of Jonah enters the scene after, after all of these prophets have been prophesying God's word to God's people. Jonah enters the scene and describes a very real historic event that follows the same metaphorical imagery that was previously described by the prophets. Of this man who like has the same life of what the prophets have been saying. And then the, the storyteller Jonah uses Jonah's story in a very prophetic and satirical way to leverage God's word to God's people. He sees this Israelite living out this story of, 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 of sin and rebellion, and faithlessness to God, who eventually gets swallowed up because of the consequences of his own decisions, and is eventually redeemed and rescued on the other side. And so, so as the readers, the original audience of Jonah, is reading through this, they get to chapter 2, and they're beginning to see their own story play out in this story of Jonah. This is supposed to make you go, oh, this is kind of what it was like when I was faithless, when I was sinful and rebellious against God. Maybe in your entire life, or maybe there's just a category of your heart where God is not welcome. And, and, and it's designed for the readers of Jonah to go, that's what God has been saying to us this whole time. I'm a lot like this. And, 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 and as they get to Jonah 2 and they see this, the consequences of their sins swallow them up, they're left with the question, is God going to be faithful to redeem on the other side of this? And that's what Jonah 2 is aimed at answering. That's what we have to understand is that, that as, as Jonah begins to live this out, it's a mirror image for how our relationship with God could go if we don't heed the message. <laughs> and so as we jump in here, I want to encourage you, put your sanctified imagination on for a moment. Immerse yourself in this story. You have a man who's running from God because he does not approve of God's plan to give grace to people that are not like him. 
He's running from God. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down onto the boat. And he actually thinks he's getting away. Right? He begins to sail to the ends of the earth, total opposite direction for as long and as far as he could possibly go. He's running from God. Right? He's standing on this boat, open horizon in front of him, wind in his hair. He's running from God, and eventually it all catches up to him. The consequences of his sin and his rebellion and his pride and his selfishness catches up to him and overtakes him to the point that he goes down, down, down. And, and, and in his spiritual slumber and in his rebellion, he is now hit rock bottom. And this rock bottom moment is a picture to God's own people of their entrapment, of their confusion, of the consequences of their sin, of the pain and uh, oppression and the confinement that result from sin. And as in Jonah's case, a mess of his own making. And so the question is, what do you do when you're here? How do you process this? How do you pray when you're at rock bottom? So Jonah 2 is offered to God's people almost as a playlist for how to relate to God when the consequences of sin have brought me to the very depths. How do I pray? How do I, how do I reach out? And, and frankly, it may not even be your own fault. Take Daniel, for example. Daniel was a wonderful man. Daniel was a, a great man of God whose suffering happened to him at the hand of Babylon. In fact, he's He's exiled to Babylon because of his parents' sin, not because of his own sin. So what do you do with that? How do you pray from the belly of the beast when the consequences of somebody else's sin have spilled over into your life and now you're at rock bottom? How do you relate to God? What do you do? What do you pray? How do you reach out when you've crashed and burned? Prayers for God's people who found themselves in dark and confined spaces. So what I want to invite you to do, we're going to go through chapter 2 pretty slowly, and at the end we're going to read through it all together. But I want to invite you, as we do this, to use this prayer in Jonah 2 as a framework for how to pray to God from the dark and confined space. And, And maybe you're there because of a mess of your own making, Maybe you're there because the consequences of somebody else's sin have spilled over into your life. Maybe there's no discernible reason you can even point to it. It just is a tragedy. Or maybe you're not even there, but you know somebody else very close to you who is, and you can pray this. I would invite you to use this as a framework to interact with God as as there's a dark and confined and lonely and deep spot that you might find yourself in. And as as we go through Jonah 2, to honestly process before God looking forward to the word that he has and the redemption that he is offering on the other side of this, okay? So let's jump into the belly of the beast. Jonah 2, 2. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. The first thing that causes him to cry, the first thing that we notice is this, this hardship causes him to cry out for help. Cry out for help. In my distress, 
I called out for help. And you might be tempted to breeze right past this, like just another emotional psalm. You're like, wow, this guy's been reading the depressing psalms of David too much lately. Um, But I'd encourage you to pause and stop because if you remember back to the last moment of your own fear or your own danger, what was the first thing that you immediately became aware of? What was the first thing, maybe even not consciously, that you instantly moved towards was this, this cry for help. You instantly became aware, I need help. And if you've ever come face to face with your own mortality, if you've almost seen the edge of your life at any given point, there is a deep and visceral cry out for help regardless of dignity that you just emerge with everything you have to cry out for help. And you most likely... If you've ever experienced fear or danger, you've most likely called out to God for help. That's a basic spiritual instinct that God has programmed inside of you when he made you. That that there is this instinctive knowledge that I need to reach out to God for help. And so this this hardship, this, this rock bottom moment brings Jonah to a place where he cries out for help. And notice what he says here. This is This is amazing. From the depths of the grave, I called out for help, and you listened to my cry. And it's really interesting, because often when we hit rock bottom, when we're at the depths, it's those moments that we seldom feel like God is very close. It's those moments that we often feel like God is probably the furthest away. He's not listening. I can't see him. What is going on? And yet Jonah gets to this point, and somehow he draws the exact opposite conclusion? Why? His experience has heightened his awareness of God's involvement in his situation. He says in verse 3, You you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea. And the currents swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers swept over me. Wait. Who hurled him into the... Whose waves and breakers are... God's waves and breakers are sweeping over him. This is really interesting. Who threw him into the heart of the sea? Well, we read in verse 15 of chapter 1 that the sailors threw him into the heart of the sea. But who now does he hear say is throwing him into the heart of the sea? He says God is. This is is a... A deep and difficult truth to wrestle with. Like once he's hit the bottom, once he is now stripped away of of all of the delusions and lies and distractions of his life, he's beginning to see God's intervention and divine hand at work in all of the situations that have led him up to this point, including getting thrown over the edge of the boat. So let's just, let's step back and, and remember how this story is playing out. What led Jonah to this point? Whose foolish and sinful decisions have led Jonah to the absolute bottom? Is God responsible for that? No, obviously Jonah is responsible for that. It's Jonah's sinful and foolish and rebellious decision that that has led him to this point. Jonah is responsible, not God. But here's another thing to think through in terms of where he's at. What if you end up in this point because of somebody else's Horrible and sinful decisions. Think about the story of Joseph, for example. Was it Joseph's fault? Joseph's responsibility for being thrown into the depths of a deep pit? No, it's, it's 
It's his brother's responsibility. Their moral responsibility. Because it's their actions that threw him into the pit. That he was eventually sold into slavery and in exile. And was eventually redeemed out on the other side. But what do you do if it's not your responsibility? If it's somebody else's sin whose consequences have spilled over into your life. And and you get to this point. Here's what Jonah sees. This This is a paradox that Jonah is becoming aware of. That regardless of whose sin lands him in this hardship, God is not surprised. Jonah sees that somehow God is sovereignly working out his plan at the same time as the, as the human beings all around him are performing actions for which they are responsible. Right? Notice this. The men took Jonah and threw him overboard. Verse 15. Now in verse 3, God, you hurled me into the very heart of the sea. This is the beautiful and mysterious interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Yes, God is sovereignly working out his predetermined plan on the landscape of history. And yes, human beings are responsible for the actions that they perform in their free will. This is for free in the New Testament. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, your responsibility to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. What what does Peter say in his Pentecost sermon? God who sent Jesus from before the foundations of the world to die on your behalf, you crucified with human hands. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Jonah's beginning to wake up to this, that yes, God is actively involved in where he's currently at, and yes, I cannot deny my own responsibility in this moment. So here's the crazy thing. At Jonah's lowest point, he's crash and burn, so to speak, and now he's waking up to the severe mercy of God. And it's a severe mercy. It's, it's very severe. At the same time, it's very merciful because Jonah sees God's fingerprints all over this. And even though Jonah has made decisions that led him to this point, God is very present and very active in his circumstance. And here's why this is very hard for us to deal with. Most of us have this subtle assumption that when we invited God into our lives, that he was going to give us Safe passage to our chosen destination, hopefully with a little security, with a little comfort. And this is a problem because if your idea of God is that his highest priority is your happiness and your comfort and your safety, your faith experience is going to begin to expose how naive this view of God is. Because that's not actually the God revealed to us in the Bible. God's highest priority for your life, according to the Bible, God's highest priority for your life is to make you into the likeness of his son Jesus. And even he was not spared from extreme suffering. Please don't miss this. So as we see time and time again, God calls a people to himself. He equips them with a accurate view of themselves and a high view of God and sends them out 
on this glorious mission to partner with him to bring his grace to the whole planet. And this is hard for each one of us to accept. This is hard for me to accept because I must, in the same breath, acknowledge that I am not God. And that this life is not about me. And that there is something so much bigger and more important than my small plans for my life. That I make a really big mess of things when I'm the one trying to hold it together. And so for many of us, this takes a very long time for us to discover in life. And eventually we crash and burn. And so in God's severe mercy, he may deal with us in ways that bring us to the end of ourselves. And, and we may even hate him for it. But the paradox of God's severe mercy is that it could be the best thing that ever happens to us. And here's why. Because at this point, we finally discover how broken and selfish we are. We discover the truth that we take our lives for granted as if we had the final say and things just have to go our way. And we discover that the only reason that I exist is because of the intention of somebody else and that I'm not the authority of my life. And it brings me to this place of dependence and humility. And this is a great place to be in. It's a great place to be in because I finally realized what God is doing and shaping me into the likeness of his son Jesus. And I'm finally willing to partner with God as I let him mold me and shape me and change the parts of me that are not like Jesus. This is God's highest priority for your life, for my life. And yet for some of us, we are running so far from God that it takes a severe mercy for God to accomplish his will in our lives. And this is what Jonah notices. This is what Jonah found himself in. How do you process before God when you finally wake up to a severe mercy? Verse 4. Jonah says, I had been banished from your sight. Yet, I will look again to your holy temple. I said to myself, I had been banished from your sight. And if you think about this, as Jonah's remembering this feeling that I thought I was banished from your sight. If you think, this is what Jonah wanted, right? Verse chapter 1, he says, I'm running from the presence of the Lord. I want to be banished. I want separation from your presence, God. I, I don't want to go where you're going. I don't want to prioritize what you are prioritizing. I don't want to care about the people that you care about. I want to just get away. And so Jonah is running as hard and as far and as fast and as long as he possibly can. And he says, I thought I actually got it. I thought I got everything I ever wanted. I thought I was finally the one who was ruling my own life. I was finally the one who was in control. I, I thought I finally got to a place where this life was about me and that God's was not intervening with my desires anymore. I, I thought that I had finally got to this point where I was separated from your presence. And then this is the turning point for Jonah. He says, yet I turned my face and looked to your holy temple. This is, this is, I think about Jonah and I go, Jonah, what was it? 
when you finally experience the freedom of your own autonomy, why all of a sudden are you going like, now I want to turn to God's holy temple? To which Jonah would say, seeking all the things I ever wanted just led me to the depths. And I crashed and I burned. And this is the profound truth that you need to get. You, You cannot miss this. That sin will take you further than you wanted to go. And it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Sin is a terrible liar. It does not deliver on the promises. You thought you wanted everything in life, but you ordered from wish.com. That's what sin is. It it does not always deliver on the promise. It's going to give you a little bit of an illusion. It's going to give you a little bit of a luster. And then when you finally get it all, you're like, this is truly terrible. This is, this is awful. Jonah says, oh, I got everything. And I became painfully aware of the fact that it just, it wasn't worth it. That aiming for Tarshish was the worst thing I could ever want. Because he, he goes on in verse 5. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. And to the roots of the mountain, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But... This is crucial. But you brought my life up from the pit. N- not, not running away from you, not getting everything I ever... You, God, brought my life up from the pit. See, a lot of people today, probably most people, live under the delusion that I... For, at least for most of the things in my life, I don't need God. That I, I'm kind of fine on my own. And, and, it, and the especially religious of us might say, yeah, God, why don't you come in and like flavor certain parts of my life? Why don't you come in and, you know, here's the seat in this room of my house. But that's about it. But most people don't even do that. Like most people, like I don't need God. And my, my life feels like it's going totally fine living for the things that, I, that make my life all about me. And here's the thing, at some point, every single one of us is going to realize that even if we got everything we ever wanted, it is not enough to truly give us life. And so Jonah realizes this. He realizes whether I got everything I ever wanted or I sank to the bottom, that God was still with me. He finally wakes up to the fact that the only thing in life he ever had going for him was that God was committed to him. The whole time, God was working out his plan for his glory and for Jonah's good, and it took a severe mercy to get Jonah to wake up to this. And this is, this is paradoxically the worst experience you could ever have and the best experience you could ever have. And it's the worst experience because he was brought right up to the boundary line of his life and was peering over. But it was the best experience you could possibly have because it's at this point when you realize that when all else fails, your creator has been the whole time turned to you in mercy, in grace, in faithfulness. 
This is what motivates him to say what he says next. Verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, God. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols, and as in Jonah's case, the idol of self-autonomy, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, I'll sacrifice to you. So it finally occurs to him that as his life is ebbing away, the only one still with him is God. The only one still giving him meaning. The only one still calling him into purpose is God. Think about this. He, he brings his memory to this point because on his way to Tarshish, he's ignoring everything that God has done for him and all the blessings that he's blessed him with. But, but now he's finally waking up to the fact that God was the only one putting wind in the sails. God was the only one blessing him with the desires of his heart. God was the only one who was fully committed to him. God was the only thing he ever had going for him. And ironically, at this lowest point, when all the pleasures and distractions are removed in God's severe mercy, these memories of God's goodness are what remain. And look at this. All the while, where is he? Where has he not left? The fish's stomach. He's in this, he's in, he's in this instrument of death, having this crazy positive turn to gratefulness. Which is bizarre. You're supposed to go like, what? These are the beautifully poetic words that are uttered in synagogues. What are you? This does not make sense. This is crazy. And, and you're supposed to marvel at this turn, this upturn in Jonah's heart. Like, what on earth would generate this type of gratefulness when all the self-autonomy that you aimed for in life never got you to this point? And it's the paradox of God's severe mercy. It totally strips away all the lies and all the distractions that we've been surrounding ourselves with. And it finally removes the clutter and brings us to the truth of who we are before a holy God. And we finally realize that the only thing that we ever had going for us was that God was committed to us. Because here's the thing. We're often conditioned to think. When we're in a lousy circumstance... That either my life is not valuable, or that God is not for me, or both. And Jonah is drawing the opposite conclusion. Right? Jonah is in this lousy circumstance, and he's beginning to realize that it has nothing to do with God's commitment for him. That his situations and his feelings are lousy indicators. They are not reliable indicators of what God feels about towards him. Can I say that to you? Your feelings are not a reliable indicator about the value of your life. Like, your circumstance is not reliable to indicate what God feels about you. There is only one place that we look to indicate what God feels about us, amen? And it is in this image of one man being swallowed up by death and rising again on the other side to offer redemption to you. That is where we look to give us an indicator of how God feels about us. Jonah's story is pointing us somewhere. And so, so this, this, motive, this, this realization, what it does for Jonah, it's powerful. It motivates him to worship. 
The realization that there's absolutely nothing that can threaten or reduce God's faithfulness and commitment to him compels him to praise God with a renewed commitment. So verse 9, he says, But I was with a song of thanksgiving, I'll sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, God, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And it's really easy to read this. Read verse 9 and verse 10, and not be super worried about how things are going to turn out for Jonah. Right? Because you have verse 10 right there. But realize this. As Jonah is praying and worshiping in verse 9, he has no concept verse 10 is coming. He is not praising God for deliverance from the fish. He is not looking to a saving God and saying, thank you for getting me out of this mess of my own making that includes all of this physical stuff. Jonah looks to God and says, you are saving me. You are rescuing me. You are delivering me. You are making a way out of this mess of my own selfishness and my own worthlessness and my own sin and my own rebellion and my own racism and my own hate and my own idea of what I thought my life was supposed to be. God, you are rescuing me from me. And Jonah looks at this and turns to God and recognizes that the worst thing I could have ever wanted was everything I ever wanted. But God, you're beginning to wake me up to the fact that you are the one worth worshiping. You are the one worth following and that you are saving me from me. And he turns to worship. He sees the rescue and redemption of God before he's ever released from the fish. Here's the point. And you need to get this. That even when I crash and burn, God is faithful at every turn. Amen. Even when I crash and burn, when I get to the lowest points, and frankly, it's my own fault. But even if it's not my own fault, when I've hit rock bottom, that the only thing I ever had going for me was that God was faithfully and passionately committed to me my entire life. Even when I crash and burn, God is faithful at every turn. So I want to invite you to, as I'm going to read through chapter 2 again, I want to invite you to use this as a prayer to God from the pit, from the darkness, from the bottom. And, and maybe you're there because of a mess of your own making. Maybe you're there because somebody else's sin spilled over onto you. Maybe you're there for no reason you can discern at all. It just feels like a tragedy. Or maybe you're not there and you just know somebody else is. And you can pray this over them. I might invite you to interact with God as I go through chapter 2 again. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. 
and the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Church, he is faithful. He is committed to you. And although you feel like you're at the edge, peering over the boundary line of the end of you, he is a God who makes a way. He is a saving God. He is a rescuing God, even if that means rescuing you from you. He is good and faithful. And the only thing you have going for you is that God is committed to you. Amen? So let's, like Jonah, let's turn in worship. God, thank you so much for being so good to us. And as we lift our voice to you in worship, God, I pray that you would be enthroned upon our praises and that you would be glorified this morning. Amen.